0: Welcome to The Business of Government. I'm Amanda Lang. This is a special podcast series for The Hub. On it, we're aiming to take a closer look at how our governments function in Canada. Things like their effectiveness, but also their failures. We're taking a nonpartisan, non-jaundiced view of how what's arguably the most important service is delivered to Canadians. And our aim is to understand what we could do better, differently, what's going wrong, and maybe even celebrating some things that we're getting right. Some of the subjects that we want to explore include why it sometimes feel like our governments just aren't that good at big projects, big procurements seem to go wrong time and again, from new jet planes, commissioning ships, to of course the famous IT system that pays federal bureaucrats. It can feel like government bungles things as much as possible, and at a much greater rate than the private sector. In this series, we wanna ask the question, how is government functioning? Is it working well? Where are the shortfalls? What could be done better? We're also going to look at the size of government. Sometimes it only ever seems to increase in size. Is there an ideal size for governance? And we're harking back to nudge policies. Remember them? Are they still being used? And could our own psychological behaviors be used to better effect, to help govern us better? So let's get started. This week, we're talking about the quality of the civil service, the people who actually do the work of putting policy in place, and in theory, at least, the ones who stick around and build expertise on the various working parts of government. Politicians, of course, come and go, and our civil servants are supposed to be the permanent residents. They're the ones uh, that elected officials rely on for advice and guidance. But is it our imagination, or has the quality of the civil service deteriorated over time? One thing we do know is that it's bigger than ever, but is the knowledge base as strong as it needs to be? So today we're asking the question, where are the experts? Michael Warnick was Canada's top civil servant. He was clerk of the Privy Council from 2016 to 19. He's now the Jaroslawski Chair of Public Sector Management at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you.
0: So um, Michael, I wanna start with this suspicion, I think you call it, that people have that the quality of our civil service is different than it used to be, that it's deteriorated over time. Can we start there or do we have less talent, less expertise inside the civil service than 20 or 30 years ago?
1: No, I don't think there's any evidence for that. Uh, You know, maybe a bit of nostalgia from people that left and think things were better in their day. But the evidence is that, you know, in a more and more demanding environment, public sector, federal, provincial, municipal continues to deliver for Canadians.
0: So when you say continues to deliver, how do we measure that? How would you, you know, both formally in your role, but across your roles in government, say this is effective and it's working?
1: Well, uh, what governments try to do hasn't really changed that much. Uh, you know, it's about keeping us safe and secure, uh, generating economic growth and prosperity. There are distributive issues. There's how to engage in the world. Uh, and by, uh, you know, almost uh, a long list of measures, Canada is, you know, a successful country. So peace order and good government must have something to do with that. Public sector itself, you know, does does try to identify, uh, you know, measurements uh, that it can present to Parliament with the spending estimates. These are goals and objectives and targets. And there's an incredible infrastructure of feedback loops on the public sector to check up on, on how it's doing from internal audit to almost a dozen officers and agents of parliament. So there's this continuous, uh, you know, checking in and looking back, uh, you know, on on, uh, what should have, could have been, you know, been done differently.
0: So, I mean, it sounds like there are, I mean, obviously there would be robust procedures in place. And as you say, ways to kind of check and review. If anything, what we hear is there may be too much of that, that there may be too many layers, uh, too many kind of making sure that this will stand up to tests down the road. Uh, do you see any evidence of that, that we have maybe too too many, I, you know, I don't want to say bloated or, you know, because these become such loaded terms, but you do get the sense from people who've been inside government that there is a lot of bureaucracy in the bureaucracy.
1: Well, it's an interaction with democratic politics, because a lot of it is a political response. Something happens, and and the instinct of, of ministers is to add rules and constraints or to add oversight bodies. And that's perfectly understandable. We tend to add and add and add, and it's it's much more difficult to strip them away and, and de-layer some of that. Uh, you know, the oversight is, is is a good thing. I don't want to be misunderstood. It, it helps people learn and and adapt and, and do better in the future. Um, but... <laughs> There's this kind of axis, you know, uh, that works between all of the feedback loops, you know, their institutional media coverage, which tends to focus on on the problems, opposition, politics, and so on. And, you know, it creates, there is a risk, uh, which we see of a kind of chill, uh, you know, that people get uh, risk averse, they don't want to get into trouble. That applies to ministers, it applies to public servants. And uh, they become cautious and incrementalists, and that's that's clearly a problem, uh, you know, with, with large large organizations of any kind.
0: That's very true. Uh, we certainly, in the private sector, we certainly have evidence of that, um, where there's a maybe a disconnect a little bit between kind of your activities and the end goal. And the the bigger the distance, uh, the less sort of I don't know responsiveness you can get. Uh, is there a way to solve for that? It, I mean, one of the things I guess one of the reasons I want to talk to you is. We should appreciate how complex an apparatus like our government is. And even a single department of government um, is like a, a good sized company. And so I don't want to diminish that in any way. Are there ways that we could take out some of those impediments to more direct and effective behaviors?
1: Let me start with sort of the framing. Um, you know, the public sector is federal, provincial, municipal, and indigenous, and almost anything meaningful involves interaction of those governments, whether it was, uh, you know, climate change or responding to the pandemic or or whatever. So a lot of it is about, you know, multi-layered government. The federal government is, is actually about 300 different organizations and about 70 different occupational groups. So it is more like a very, very diverse holding trying to do all kinds of different things. And the differences of managing a prison system or border services or a policy department or a regulator are almost like the differences between managing in different industries in the private sector. I mean, of course, there's some common elements. Um, but, but you know, the, the business of government is really, really diverse in, in, in its nature. Almost no sentence about the government or the public service will hold up to closer scrutiny. You, you almost have to look at specific organi- organizations. There are pockets of excellence and innovation. There are organizations that run into trouble. Uh, you know What I'd say is a common element is, do you have that learning software where you can take in new information, you can learn from mistakes, and you can commit energy and resources to doing better? That applies to the whole system. It might apply, apply to a specific department.
0: So let's drill down on that a little bit, because um, I think it's an important point to remember that this isn't one behemoth. And to your point, it's actually multiple organizations inside an organization interacting with other organizations, other levels of government. Uh, So complexity on complexity. In your tenure, did you see departments that really got that right, that managed a culture of innovation, learning environment, um, that really did kind of strive for excellence? And, And what were the qualities of those departments?
1: I think um, there's lots of stories. They don't tend to get as much attention as the ones that run into trouble. That's that's understandable. Um, And so one of the things I tried to do in in my reports to the the Prime Minister on the public services tells some of those hidden in plain sight stories. Um, You know, the evidence is there that the kinds of services that are delivered to Canadians, particularly transactional services, are completely different than they were even 10 years ago. So People adapted to the internet, they moved services to the web, they added social media. Now they're dealing with, you know, Zoom and Teams for for getting work done. About 85% of Canadians' transactional uh, relationship with the government of Canada is now online. It's on websites and apps. And we're now having a discussion about artificial intelligence and GPT. So there's always a wave of, of innovation. Um, I just saw a story posted this week about how the, you know Statistics Canada has adapted to cloud computing. You know, it's not a sexy news story, but it's an important work by Statistics Canada.
0: Yeah, I mean, so for a, for every one of those, unfortunately, I think we could point to you know uh, Canada Revenue Agency uh, and the fact that it's not automated and that there we have these you know. But,
1: but you know, if you uh, there's a there's a, a well known phenomenon. You can make a graph look steeper or flatter depending on the time scale you use. And if you think about the way CRA worked 10 or 15 years ago, it has moved to my account. It has moved to personalization. It has moved to uploading of your, you know, your tax documents proactively. Yeah. So you know, we're in the next wave of service improvement. And, and uh, so I think it's sometimes difficult to you know to see the perspective. Uh, you know, you you can renew a driver's license in seconds now. You can pay online; your 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 money comes in through Depec deposit. Uh, you don't have to go very far back where none of these things were true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like the looking on the bright side of this because, to your point, it rarely happens that people actually kind of take a really unjaundiced view of how things are functioning. So then let me challenge you a little bit to say what would you say isn't working well if we if we're doing pretty well and as you say um you know peace order good government we seem to have all of that where could we improve where's the what we would call opportunity in a 360 review <laughs>
1: Well, it's not hard to get ministers and governments to pay attention to transactional services that, you know, that Canadians interact with. So if there's a problem with passports or immigration processing or EI, it will get fixed. Uh, People will invest the money and resources. Uh, One of my themes is what gets neglected and, and, and rusts out almost literally are all of the internal services, finance, human resources, information management, uh, you know, uh, material management, buildings, tools. These are the kinds of things that make everything else possible. Mm-hmm. And not only do they tend to get neglected until there's a crisis, but when you have one of these waves of, of spending reviews and cuts, they tend to be the things that are are cut because any group of politicians will go out and say, no, no, we're protecting service to the Canadians. We're going to find efficiencies within government. And of course, it's all of these internal services that get cut back, and, and particularly training and leadership development, which uh, we you know the public sector needs to to invest a lot more in to keep up.
0: One thing we've heard is uh, just on that front that the top civil servants, the uh, the deputy ministers, but also the associates and uh, assistant deputy ministers, tend to get moved around. And that uh, that can be a bit of an impediment to building up their their subject matter expertise, if you will, that their own kind of career development suggests they should be moved, but that from a minister's point of view, they lose some of that institutional knowledge too frequently. Would you say that's a fair concern?
1: Um. It's never easy to get the balance right. I mean, I dealt with this problem as as clerk and had to move people around. And it happens because vacancies are created. People retire, they get sick, they take jobs elsewhere, and you have to find somebody to fill that job. You, if you move somebody uh, within the public service leadership, you tend to need, then you just get another problem and so on. So Bringing in people from outside can, you know, uh, from provincial governments and other sectors can help uh, with the supply. But I, I would say in the senior leadership, you're not always looking for that deep specialist in one area. Um, hybrids are very, very useful. Somebody who in policy who has worked in, in in operations, somebody in operations who knows what it's like to work at, you know, at the finance department of the strategy board. Uh, people that have worked in regions, you know, coming to headquarters and so on. So Um, I I think the people that are are most successful leading complex public sector organizations have a composite of skills and you shouldn't just look at their current job. You should look at the last three or four jobs that they did before.
0: So one of the key pieces uh, of that and of a really well-functioning department is that interaction between the political and uh, the, the bureaucracy, the civil service. How does that work? Is it working well? Do are we getting kind of the best out of those relationships?
1: Uh, I wrote an entire book about this. If people want to <laughs> dig into it deeper, um, it's it, there's a natural sort of tension in it, and when it works well, it's magic because you need political leadership, um, you know, to to change things. Um, so, you know, the the pair bonds between ministers and departments keep changing as well. <laughs> There's been a complete turnover of, uh, of the cabinet that I worked with only six or seven years ago. So, uh, you know, the churn happens on both sides.
0: I guess we can touch on the fact that you also were quite involved in the ways that the politics of a thing can interfere with the policy of a thing, perhaps unpleasantly uh, in some cases. Is that well managed? And I, I, I say that from the point of view, really, of leaving aside kind of political stories, the bureaucracy trying to get things done, having a view about the longer term progress towards something and sort of being, I don't want to say thwarted, Michael, but it being interrupted by some political realities of the day.
1: It's more complex than that. Sometimes you get forward looking uh, ministers who, you know, have an eye to leaving a legacy and doing things that they won't be around to see the full fruit of. And governments do a lot of that. They make investments in infrastructure and they make investments in learning programs. You know, I could go on, uh, but they also have to survive the day to day combat of partisan politics and get elected. You know, um, so they always have that in their mind and it can make them. Can make them risk averse on some issues, but that's democratic politics, and I'm glad we live in a, de- in a democracy.
0: I know that you have a view about this notion of the right size of government. There's some data on you know sweet spots around what you're in, what you're investing and what you get out, um, and and maybe that's that's one one lens on it, perhaps. Uh, but do you have you ever worried that you know we've certainly seen a rash of hiring. Uh, through pandemic and post-pandemic, that is public sector hiring. There's no doubt about that. Do you ever worry that there is such a thing as too big when it comes to uh, the size of our public sector?
1: Well, I mean, that's a decision for democratically elected politicians to make largely through elections. Uh, How much do they want government to do and, and how much are they willing to generate in revenues to pay for it? Um, about every 10 years or so, there's a major reset. Uh, you know, Jean Chrétien had a program review. Stephen Harper had a deficit reduction action plan. These exercises of culling and weeding and dethatching the public sector are a good idea. Um, but, you know, the, they, they come down to political choices about this is important to keep and this this we can uh, we can stop doing. So if we're going to do it again, I think politicians have to be clear about their stop doing list.
0: Do you have a view about whether that's been done well in the past or does it tend to be kind of a blunt instrument when it's cost cutting? That's the aim rather than you don't get the impression that uh, there's sort of a very incisive review department by department of what you know tends to be, I think, a bigger picture. We just need to cut. So let's go find it.
1: No, I think that's an, that's another phenomenon. Of, you know, it just doesn't make the news. Uh, you know, we we went through program review. We went through you know strategic reviews, administrative services reviews, reviews of legal services, and the deficit reduction exercise by Stephen Harper. Uh, there's there's a constant feedback loop on that, and uh, it's something evidently Canada does well. Just look at the pictures in France, where you've got social turmoil over a small change in pension schemes we fixed our public pension plans, you know, uh, twice, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, and we've gone through all kinds of major structural reforms in Canada without that kind of turmoil. In in, uh, the program review that Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin did, we went from a deficit that was about 6% of GDP to balance and surplus within four years. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's another country in the G7 that could pull that off.
0: It was impressive, uh, and but provinces would say it came at a cost to other governments, uh, I think.
1: Sure, but but they you know they they have their answerability to their voters as well. Yeah, any provincial premier is free to raise income tax or sales tax or corporate tax and make up the difference.
0: Do you worry that that kind of uh, focus on fiscal balance is missing these days? Does that concern you?
1: That's a political. That's for you know. That's for the twenty twenty five election. If people want a government that's uh, running small surpluses, they should vote for one. Uh, I don't think it really matters whether that government is you know running at fifteen percent of GDP or thirteen percent of GDP. Um, you know, we have to make decisions. Uh, what's important to Canadians? Whether it's health transfers or you know bulking up defense spending for a more dangerous world or you know, better infrastructure in our cities. Uh, You know, politics is about choosing. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
0: One subject that has gotten a fair amount of attention lately has been the size and quantity of consulting contracts. And I know you've, you've written about this. Um, you've obviously had lots of time to be involved in these kinds of thinking around these things. Is it worrisome that we seem to be outsourcing uh, knowledge and decisions in this way, if I can put it that way?
1: Well, as I told the parliamentary committee, I've never seen management consultant firms play a role in policy. I've seen lobbyists, I've seen special interest groups play a role in policy, but never management consultants. They basically are in the area of service delivery operations and transactional kinds of things. They bring expertise from working with private sector clients, uh, you know, in the financial sector or telecom or services or tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, Technology is changing so quickly. Uh, You know, we talk about the arrival of, of cloud computing and social media and AI. The idea that the public service could keep up all by itself is is just fanciful. You need to bring in outside perspective and expertise. Some of the antidote to that mentality of, well, this is the way we always do things, is to find out how it's done elsewhere. So I think well used, they can play a very positive role in keeping the learning software going. If people are worried about a dependency on outside firms, then my answer would be, what are you going to do about it? And I would double the investment in training and leadership development. So the capacity, you know, in-house is made stronger.
0: One thing that I have heard is that there's a reliance on outside management, outside views, consultants, to reassure, if you will, that there is there's sort of a lack of confidence inside departments that that they have the information. I don't know whether that's a political lack of confidence or a bureaucratic one, but does that resonate with you at all? Does that have any truth? Yeah,
1: no. I said that in my article. It cascades down that um, treasury board ministers and specific ministers um, often are a little skeptical of public service advice, especially about costing and about you know about implementation. They they do seek reassurance from, a, you know, a good housekeeping seal, to use an old metaphor. And that's a common reflex by ministers. And I don't think ministers should be expected to, you know, depend 100% on public service advice about these things. But it cascades through, you know, into the, the public service leadership as well that, you know, but it's good practice to use outside auditors. It's good practice to, you know, to bring in uh, external legal consultants, uh, you know, to check on on uh, you know the advice that's been given, so they can play a, a complementary role to internal capacity that can that can actually be helpful.
0: It's it, I guess what seems surprising to many is that the uh, the sheer dollar volume of consulting contracts rose as the bureaucracy uh, swelled as well. In other words, we have more people on staff, and we're also outsourcing some of this uh, this so work. Well, as
1: I told the committee, it's not a zero sum. It's not a teeter totter. It just means there's more work. Uh, there's more projects at a faster vo- in a larger volume at a faster pace with shorter deadlines so there's more work for everybody more work for public servants and more works for external contractors if you want to slow it down then you have to slow down the pace of work and 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 make decisions about well this is no longer you know urgent or we're not going to do this anymore and those those are hard decisions to make
0: they are i'm I'm curious for your view on that that relationship between the political side, so the minister, if you will, and uh, and the civil service. I mean, you alluded to this, that there can be sometimes a little bit of, you didn't say tension, but I'm going to say tension between the two. Is that relationship working for the most part, as it should, or is there something we could do to improve it?
1: I think... Um... It generally works quite well. And again, the evidence is things get done, and this is a successful country. And, uh, uh, you know, it is an open, transparent, democratic country that ranks very highly in all the governance measurements around the world. Um, So basic, you know, evidently something is working. (laughs) You can end up with pair bonds where you have a, you know, a a difficult relationship. I, I talk about this in my book. Sometimes it's the minister, the chief of staff, sometimes it's the senior official, and it's really important at the top level you know, the 80 or so senior leaders at the top of a pyramid of over 300,000 people are the ones that spend the most time with ministers, that having a good, trusting, working relationship is is essential.
0: One of the suspicions I think you'd find most of your fellow Canadians harbour is that there is bloat inside departments that if we could get it, just get in there and simplify and, uh, you know, that there'd be tons of cost cuts available Uh, Are you here to say that that work does get done and and what's available does get cut? Or do you think there is still some room in there for more leanness or efficiency?
1: It's always worth trying to do better and be leaner. And sometimes, you know, a broad spending review, uh, you know, will 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 help. Uh, the hardest argument to make, though, is we need to make an investment to do better. We, you know, we need to replace the IT system, and it's going to cost you before you see the return. But that's a very difficult argument to get approval for. And so, uh, if you really want, <laughs> if you want to go at that, you also have to be prepared to make investments in training, in new technology. Follow best, you know, best private sector practice is you spend money on tools and technology and training, and I, I'd like the public sector to do that as well.
0: There is a perception even when some of those investments are made and you know Phoenix is the the one that comes to mind, it's sort of the famous one, but there's this perception that we don't do a good job, whether that's implementing a big projects, whether that's procurement over time. Again, wh- wh- how do you f- reframe that for us if, if, if you want to? Is there another way to see those things?
1: There's no way to defend the specific incidents. Uh, but you know IT project failures are rampant in the private sector as well. It is it is a tough thing to do and to do well. And you know, I could finger point to other examples. You know, in in the private sector, the risk tolerances and the cybersecurity risks associated with the public sector make it you know doubly hard in in some ways. So clearly, we we just have to keep working on you know a, a new technologies, whether it's uh, you know zoom based work platforms or what artificial intelligence is going to do to you know to some of some of the service delivery and so on. If I can go back to you know. <laughs> It's worth trying to make the operations of government leaner, but you're not going to balance the budget on that. You know, overwhelmingly what the $400 billion the government, federal government will spend this year will go to are transfers to provinces and transfers to individuals. There are six big programs account for about two thirds of the dollars. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you could cut the public service in half. You would save twenty billion dollars. It's not, you know, so it's worth doing because better outcomes and better services and better policies, you know, are the result. But it's not going to be the key to fiscal balance.
0: That a fair point. That it's 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 not the big budget item, um, and maybe we shouldn't pick on it. You've alluded to the fact that our government functions well relative to others. Are there countries that you would look at and compare us to and say we should emulate? Are there any other countries out there or functioning governments that you think get something better than we do? Uh,
1: There there are always examples to learn from. And I I participate in a lot of of international fora, but I kind of get tired of hearing about Singapore and Estonia because like Estonia is one million people in in an area smaller than Metro Toronto. So, Uh, you know, we're a big country of 40 million people spread across six time zones, and we are a federation in which we have, you know, multiple layers of government. So uh, there's a limit to how much you can take from England or Finland or Germany, but, you know, it's always worth trying.
0: And, uh, of course, the other piece of this that uh, maybe you don't think there's any issue, but I guess my question would be if there's more we should be doing on attracting and retaining uh, the best and brightest. And I guess maybe it is rose colored glasses, Michael. It's possible. I, I, I mean, I was a child in the 1970s. It felt as though maybe the quality is the same, but the respect people had for our civil servants uh, was phenomenally higher. I don't think that's in any in any dispute. I mean, we, they were just among the most respected practitioners uh, out there. And that has changed. And I I can't help but wonder if that doesn't actually have that kind of vicious cycle effect where then you don't attract the same caliber of people. Maybe also true in the political realm.
1: I never I mean, the evidence is I never had trouble attracting good talent. Uh, and there were people from law firms and private sector firms and universities willing to come in and spend some time in government. They may not want to devote their entire career to it. I'm an advocate of more interchange. Uh, it's a good idea to have people crossing from the private, public and not-for-profit sectors for a period of time and learning about uh, you know, uh, about what it's like on, on the other side. Uh, we only do handfuls of that a year. We should be doing probably 100 to 200 interchanges every year and then people go back to their private sector careers or they do their government job with a lot more awareness of, of the rest of Canada.
0: There is, um, when you do get those successes, uh, especially people who are bringing special knowledge, special experience, there is this perception, and again, we can find pockets in the private sector, so maybe it's not fair to pick on government, but it's a super important service for all of us, so I'm going to pick on it a little bit. There is this impression that the kind of big ideas, the fast-moving people get slowed down, that there's a weight to the system that stops things from happening the way they might as fast as they might or at all. Any truth to that?
1: Well, you work in in an environment with a very different risk tolerances, as I talk, you know, so definitely. And you work in a place where authority and decision making is far more distributed than it would be in, you know, the top floor of a a corporate office tower where you can walk around to five people and get a decision. And there's this feedback layer. So you know, managing at the top levels of the public sector is far more difficult, um, you know, and and so my experience is that that's the challenge and that's the reward. And, you know, being an innovator and a reformer in the public sector is, is a very rewarding career.
0: You know, one of the things um, we spend less time on in general uh, is thinking about innovation in services, um, although companies do it, of course, by way of their own business models. Do we innovate enough in the delivery of government services? Is that a constant process as well internally?
1: Well, I mean, there were no iPhones in 2007, and now people do all kinds of things on apps. So, you know, evidently, a lot of service, transactional services, have migrated to the internet, to you know, interactive websites, to you know, to phone apps, and so on. And that will continue. Uh, you know, as, as AI-driven chatbots, you know, become you know, frontline services, and so on. Blockchain will affect, uh, you know, payment systems and so on. So that there'll be a constant wave. I don't think the public sector can ever be the first mover uh, because of that, you know, that risk tolerance. An IT failure in government, you know, is, is something that can end the career of a minister or, you know, a senior official. So that the art in it is spotting things that are happening in the private sector in the technology world and, and saying, OK, now how can I apply this to you know to the business or the service that I'm managing? And that's a constant uh, effort by the public sector.
0: Starting from the position that you think things are pretty good, because uh, I don't, I don't want to make this next question sound like I haven't been listening. I think you think that our government functions pretty well and the bureaucracy works. What would you put on a list of things that would improve it?
1: I don't want to be misunderstood. There are lots of things to attend to, you know, information management within the government is is a shambles. And I told the parliamentary committee that very directly, we don't, you know, the public sector does not invest enough in training and leadership development. And I told the parliamentary committee that directly. Uh, There are obviously areas of service that, you know, that need to be fixed and corrected when problems are detected. I'm not making the argument that government is perfect. I, I'm making the argument that it learns and adapts and moves forward. and more attention to how it works, especially how it works internally, is very, very welcome. I'm glad you're doing, doing this series. Um, you know, it is so important to the security of prosperity of the, you know of Canadians that uh, we should pay more attention to, to how the public sector works.
0: And also occasionally admit that it's getting it right.
1: Well, I, I, I get more irritable with all the commentary which kind of trash talks the country as if we're some kind of failing Stalinist gulag when all of the evidence is uh, we're one of the most successful societies and countries in, in the world, uh, you know, both in terms of uh, prosperity and quality of life and inclusion. Uh, there's a whole other theme we could talk about about you know that nostalgic public service of the 1970s and 80s was run by white males. Uh, you know, and, and there's been an arc of inclusion to bring women into leadership roles. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, the public service I joined, you could lose your security clearance for being gay. Uh, and that, that's the language of the time. Uh, a lot of effort to catch up to the diversity of a country where a quarter of Canadians were born outside this country. You know, I could go on. Uh, you know, the, 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 the public service now is 55 percent female and half of the leadership uh, ranks are female. I don't think we want to go back to some nostalgic time, you know, of old white men sitting around the Rito Club.
0: Michael, some of the time it feels as though people think, you know, you can just get rid of government. Uh, the, the, it's not playing this particularly useful role or it's, it's a, an encumbrance, if anything else, to this hardworking private sector that wants to get things done. Uh, what's the reality in your view of that?
1: Well, the reality is that private and public sectors are completely codependent. I mean, there would be no public sector if there was no growth and, and income and wealth to tax to pay for things. Uh, the lesser known part of it is, is how much of a private sector growth and, and innovation comes from from government. Uh, you know, there's some obvious parts to this that we tend to only think about, you know, from time to time, uh, you know. Um, The Coast Guard and Border Services and the Seaway authorities make commerce possible for a trading nation. It's $250 billion a year through our ports, $3 billion a day across the Canada-US border, as we learned during the pandemic. Um, The government procurement is important to the demand and the prosperity of all kinds of businesses across Canada. I think the least known one is how much innovation came out of the public sector, either, you know, government research labs or government research uh, grants, you know, the entire consumer electronics industry came from alkaline batteries, which were just, you know, invented at, at the University of Toronto. Everything on a smartphone came from the public sector. The internet protocol, the HTML code, the wireless protocol, touchscreens, Siri started with a government grant, the Google search engine you know, started with a National Science Foundation grant. There would be no Apple, no Google or Tesla without the seed money and the risk taking by the public sector. The entire fracking industry came from US Energy Department grants. The pharmaceutical industry, you know, comes from gov- you know, medical research grants and university research. Uh, the grains and oil seeds industry comes from experimental farms and, you know, government research and so on. Uh, there'd be no biotech. I could go on and on. Uh, so I think it's, it's better to t- think about the interconnection and the codependency uh, that, you know, for Canadians, when you have a strong public sector, you get a strong private sector and vice versa. And it is something that Canada does better than, than many other countries.
0: I think it's such an important point to remember uh, the the kind of net benefit of having a a government that's functioning well and plays these important roles. I guess the pushback would be procurement's an interesting one. Um, You actually often hear, and maybe it's our tendency to focus on those negative stories and by... Our tendency, I mean, journalists' tendency, uh, perhaps uh, you, you hear about, you know, companies that can't sell into government, that government is too risk averse, that their procurement policies are, you know, don't favor um, new products. These kinds of things. Do you think those are at the margin? Do you think for the most part, the the just the importance of that purchasing power outweighs any of those complaints?
1: Well, I mean, the complaints are probably coming from unsuccessful bidders, which sounds a bit unkind. I mean, procurement is a very complicated process, but it's carrying all kinds of objectives and value for money is only one. Uh, Politicians have loaded it up with regional development and supporting small business and promoting Canadian champion companies and, you know, tracking Greenhouse gas emission targets and uh, supporting equity-seeking groups to build businesses, and I I can go on and on. There's a lot of lot of layers to procurement policy, and uh, because we're an open trading nation, it has to comply with you know our trade agreements with uh, with our partners. So you know it's difficult to make procurement processes work fast. The ones that get attention are the big dramatic once in a while we buy 88 fighter jets. Uh, but there's a lot of routine public, you know, public service procurement uh, that works very well um, and, and uh, you know, just isn't really newsworthy.
0: I think most people would agree that at least optically, when we do buy fighter jets, we don't do a good job of it. It takes too long and uh, it costs more than we thought. And we see a bunch of reversals of decisions. Is that a political problem or a bureaucratic one?
1: Bit of both. Um, I'm not aware of any country that really is happy with its defense procurement system. The Americans aren't, the Brits aren't, the French aren't, uh, you know, so uh, it is a particular challenge. It's a topic for another day, whether, you know, defense procurement could be made to work better.
0: Overall, though, uh, the the only other kind of complaint you would hear is sometimes government is taking up, of course, they're crowding out capital uh from other parts of the market. In other words, if government wasn't doing it, the private sector would do it. That's not true of some things. Literally, the government only the government could do some functions. But is there an argument to be made there that when our government does get bigger in our economy, it is actually at the cost of the private sector?
1: Not at a macroeconomic level, uh you know, there's there's no evidence of shortage of capital, for, you know, for the private sector um, and and the Public sector often fills in risk zones that the private sector lenders are not willing to take. I mean, that's why we have a variety of of government credit institutions, uh, you know, like BDC and ECC and the farm credit and so on, because the market isn't fully filling that space.
0: I guess the bottom line is the message that you might share is that we should remember the benefits, the codependency, I guess, in a very positive way, uh, both public and private sector. They're not two solitudes.
1: I mean, the key point is, you know, the boundaries between what government does and, and what the private and not-for-profit sectors do, and let's not forget the 80,000 Canadian charities and not-for-profits, is a matter for democratic politics to settle. We can pick people that would prefer things to be outsourced or privatized, and we, we pick people that prefer they'd be, you know, delivered directly by government. That's a choice we can make in a couple of years.
0: So good to have you. Thank you so much for this.
1: Well, thank you for your interest. I I think uh, you know, as as I said, uh, peace, order, and good governments in the interest of all Canadians.
0: Indeed, thanks. On the next episode of the Business of Government, remember nudge policies—the use of behavioral psychology to help govern—was a big change in the mid-2000s. But in a world of increasingly polarized views, does a nudge still work, or do you need something more like a sledgehammer? that's coming up on The Business of Government.